This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast. We are continuing our foray through Mises' magnum opus, Human Action. It's been quite uh, a really an interesting ride so far with a lot of great guests, and I know that a lot of you have been listening along, reading along, and trying. Uh, perhaps you, you have some extra time at home during this pandemic crisis to spend a little time with Mises and maybe dig into a book that you've thought about reading but haven't quite you know, made yourself get around to reading, because it is a bit daunting, and that's really one of the reasons we started this podcast is to get people interested and also give them a little help in understanding as they went through it. So I am here to serve as sort of the conduit between the lay reader and our various guests who are all economists. Last week, we went through part five of the book, which was kind of a reset. It was a very short section, uh, and it's where Mises walks through the the idea of an imaginary construct of a full socialist society where we, we literally would not have a market or prices and that everything would be planned centrally and bureaucratically and what that might look like. And of course, since this is, in a sense, it's a treatise, but it's also a textbook of sorts. Uh, there's uh, just like the evenly rotating economy or the Robinson Crusoe model, there is some benefit to be had in understanding uh, even imaginary constructs which are not reflected in the real world so that we sort of have a footing upon which to compare. And that's that footing laid out in part five is where we get into part six, which is about the hampered market economy, which is the actual world in which we all live. And what we're going through today uh, again, because this part of the book, like a lot of them, is just too lengthy to get through in one podcast session. We'll just be going through the first four chapters. That's 27 through 30. And that corresponds, if you've got the Scholar's Edition at home, that corresponds to pages 712 to 773. So it really some great stuff here, some interesting stuff, uh, more, a little more ideological and political stuff in this section as well. And Peter, I guess... Since we've had so many guests, we haven't had you yet in this new series. Let me start by asking, do you recall when you first became aware of this book or heard about it? Yeah, my story is actually fairly, uh, I had an experience that's fairly common to people who are Gen Xers uh, like myself, or maybe even boomers, of first being exposed to uh, free market ideas and libertarian thought and even Austrian economics from reading Ayn Rand, a friend of mine back in high school. Uh, gave me a copy of Ayn Rand's book, The Fountainhead, and encouraged me to read it. And I did. I enjoyed it. I went on and read um, one of Ayn Rand's nonfiction books called Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, which is partly famous for having a chapter by Alan Greenspan, of all people, in favor of the gold standard. And uh, in that book, she she had a sort of an appendix in the back with a list of recommended readings uh, that included uh, several books by Mises, uh, Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. And I was a high school kid, and I can't remember now if these were sorted by degree of difficulty, but I know that I tried Economics in One Lesson first, and then Mises' anti-capitalist mentality. Later, when I got on to college uh, and starting to started to study economics at the college level, I remember dipping my toe into Mises' Human Action, not finding it a super easy read, but nonetheless being excited just by the ideas in the book. So you gave it a go anyway, maybe in your undergraduate years. I did. Yeah. So I was I was fortunate, you know, in, in being a, I was taking economics classes from my professors. My professors were not Misesians or Austrian economists or really even familiar with Austrian economics in any way. But I had these kind of, you know, I had my secret books that I was reading at home on the side. And I would come into class and ask these, you know, weird questions. And the professors would look at me with with an expression of bewilderment. Why is a kid asking us about this? And of course, it was because I was I was cribbing ideas uh, that I had picked up from. Well, as we get into this part in uh, chapter 27 called Government and the Market, he starts out with this discussion of a third way. And we still labor under this today. There's different terms for it, neoliberalism, market liberalism. Uh, we don't seem to use the term mixed economy as much anymore. That's a term that I recall from the 80s and 90s being more prevalent, maybe in that Reagan-Thatcher era of a mixed economy. And then he gives us sort of his two definitions at page 713 of 
what he would call bureaucratic socialism, uh, the Soviet style, and then more of the German style, which is which maybe you and I might refer to as fascism, but he's talking more in terms of a historical context there. So I thought Peter was interesting that he doesn't use the terms communism and fascism there. He just divides socialism up into the bureaucratic variety and into the nominally private variety. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Because, you know, from Mises' point of view, uh, Soviet-style communism and uh, Nazi or Italian-style fascism are really two variants of the same kind of system, right? So I, I, I really, I like the way Mises talks about, you know, socialism of the Russian kind versus socialism of the German kind to remind us that those 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 non-market systems are variations on a theme, you know, not the way it's commonly portrayed in, in textbooks today and the mass media and so forth, that you've got this kind of, you know, linear scale and, you know, the extreme of progressivism is communism and the extreme of libertarianism is fascism, which, of course, is is silly because we regard communism and fascism as being different versions of statism and both at the sort of opposite pole from the kind of free market system uh, that, that we think is interesting. But by the way, Jeff, um, th- there's, uh, you know, I, I was, as I was looking at the table of contents uh, in preparing to have this conversation, I found it really fascinating that, you know, part six begins on, what is it, page 712. So we're already 700 pages into this really systematic step-by-step elaboration of how a market economy works before we get to the chapters on interventionism, you know, price controls and uh, production quotas and trade restrictions and monetary uh, credit expansion and so forth. And, you know, back when I was in college and maybe the same for you, Jeff, uh, even the, the sort of conventional textbooks, they typically spent most of the time explaining how the market system works the same way that Mises does. And then they added on a piece at the end about government intervention, taxation and antitrust and so forth. And they might give greater or lesser weight to those things. And they would have a sort of a different spin on them. But one thing that's really fascinating in the last 10 years or so, sort of mainstream economics has taken what looks to me like a pretty decisive turn away from an interest in sort of understanding how markets work, either in the Austrian sense or the traditional neoclassical sense, to viewing economics as this sort of atheoretical, experimental discipline of solving interesting little social dilemmas and puzzles using a lot of statistics and maybe the occasional mathematical formula, but with very little interest in sort of understanding economics as a unified whole. One example of this was something that uh, uh, was, uh, I remember a couple of years ago, it was a big deal that uh, this, this Harvard professor, Greg Mankiw, who's a very respected mainstream sort of center-right figure. He was chair of uh, George W. Bush's Council of Economic Advisors, famous Harvard professor, textbook writer. He taught the big intro Harvard class, EC10, they call it. The, you know, thousands of students, I guess, every year take this take this big intro course using Mankiw's textbook. Uh, a couple of years ago, Mankiw retired from teaching that course, and they brought in this new guy, a young guy named Raj Chetty, also a Harvard economics professor and kind of a rising star type, who has a completely different approach to economics than Mankiw. Chetty thinks that economics really is not the systematic analysis of markets and prices and so forth which you could then later use to study government policy. Rather, in sort of the Chetty view of the world, economics is all about, economics is just the study of government and market failure and you know social, uh, different kinds of socialism and so forth. So it was a big deal that the, the Chetty version of the course threw out all the old, you know, sort of Mankiw style textbook approach and, and said, well, on day one, you know, the very first day of the freshman intro level econ course for people who've never studied economics before, we need to start. We should be talking about inequality, uh, climate change, um, you know, universal basic income, and that economics is just sort of a useful set of tools that we can use to study these various kind of social experiments and and government policies. You don't need to know supply and demand. You don't need to know about prices and marginal utility and all that stuff. Economics is not done the way Mises does it, 
where you understand the market first and you use that to explain public policy. No, economics is just a disconnected set of little vignettes and cute stories about government intervention and why we need more of it. Yeah, well, that's why these guys write textbooks, but they don't write treatises. I mean, the treatise is dead and, and buried today, it seems. And, you know, the good news here is you don't have to send your kid to Harvard. Just spend 1999 and get human action from our website, and, and your kid will be w- well ahead of those poor kids hearing about inequality at Harvard. Um, you know, what's curious is there's a lot of talk about an ill-defined term like neoliberalism, and what, what you and I probably think of it is is, is a little different than what uh, Greg Mankiw might think of it or someone like Bono. And I think Mises alludes to this on 714 when he's talking about what they, you know, they really want the benefits of a market economy, uh, but it wants to achieve them by command or yeah. by prohibition or by some sort of central decree. And and I think that's, in a sense, what neoliberalism seeks, right? That the idea that we can have our cake and eat it, too, is it hasn't gone away since Mises was writing that this in the 40s. Yeah, I think you're right, Jeff. You know, you would have to have been living under a rock for the last 50 years to, you know, not to be aware that full uh, Soviet style socialism, socialist central planning, you know, is, is a, has been a complete and utter catastrophe and is the wrong way to run an economy, even from a pure you know, perspective of sort of efficiently producing goods and services. Forget about all the political uh, issues and secret police and so forth. So nobody on the left, even, you know, Bernie Sanders or Ocasio-Cortez, none of these people can with, you know, can with a straight face say, no, we need the state to be the formal owner of 100% of the means of production. I mean, it's just, it's not credible to make that kind of a case. So even those people on the left recognize that we have to have, at least to some extent, private ownership of resources. We have to have firms and we have to have uh, you know, entrepreneurs who are seeking profits and so forth in order to get goods and services produced and you know, to keep people above a subsistence level. But of course, a free market system, a system that fully embraces those features, goes against their instincts right? Their anti-individualism, their belief in, uh, you know, the, the ability of the uh, elites like themselves, uh, the desire to control people's lives and so forth. So you're right, they want their cake and eat it too. They want a kind of a mostly capitalist system that will give them lots of stuff, that will give them iPhones and give them Netflix and give them nice cars and so forth. Uh, but they want to maintain enough control that they can shape and push and squeeze and direct and redistribute and make things a little bit, you know, more in the direction of their sort of utopian vision. Yeah, what's interesting is he gives us a very nice little definition of what he means by laissez-faire and that there's this false dichotomy between sort of the invisible hand or natural forces of the market that are automatic, and then conscious centralized planning. He says, no, 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 that's not the dichotomy in front of us. And at 726, he actually gives us a definition of what he means by laissez-faire. It's freedom versus government omnipotence. And, you know, one thing I noticed, Peter, is he doesn't use italics a lot. So when he does, I figure I better be underlining that part of the book. (laughs) You're right. He really means it when he uses those, when he he uses those italics. Uh, It's a great point. And, uh, uh, Mises is right that, you know, everybody plans, right? There's planning under any kind of social system. The the question is not, do we have planning or some kind of completely unplanned, random, you know, anarchic in the bad sense uh, way of doing things? No, the question is just who's going to do the planning? Is the state going to do it for everybody or are individuals, you know, families, entrepreneurs and so forth going to do the planning within their sphere. I've really been thinking about this exact distinction that Mises makes a lot in light of the COVID-19 crisis, right? So there's this idea among kind of the progressive community, and I guess most of the mainstream politicians of any stripe, right, that, you know, whatever is the appropriate uh, and correct scientific understanding of the virus and how it spreads, and even even now we, we know very little about that, what kinds of protective measures ought to be in place, you know, either you have the U.S. president or the, the, the exec, chief executive of the country, or maybe if you have a little bit of a federalist system, the governor of the state or some other uh, government official, 
is you know making the decisions about what people should do, or we have no protection from the virus at all. You know, as if individuals and families and business owners are not able to make their own decisions about how many people should be in the store at one time, what kind of cleaning or preventive measures they ought to have, what hours they should be open, uh, how they should engage their employees, and so forth. I mean, the idea that we can't uh, do any kind of systematic planning without someone from the state doing it for us is, of course, crazy, as Mises is pointing out in this passage that you mentioned. And it's really a, sort of an introductory chapter to this section of the book, so I don't think we need to belabor it too much. It's very interesting and short. I, I really recommend people to read it if they want a sense of how Mises saw the various potential uh, interventionist systems. But I want to point out a couple of things before we move on. And first is that Mises is obviously a classical liberal, small-D Democrat, but at 7.15, there's a very nice paragraph about government interference always means either violent action or the threat of such action. And, and the whole paragraph's worth reading. So people out there who are maybe a little more hardcore in their ANCAP uh, views or philosophy will, will find some support here for the idea that Mises understood the state in a way that uh, resonates with a lot of us. He, wasn't, uh, he didn't have any illusions on that uh, score. I'd also like to point out at uh, 7.16... And he does this at various part points in the book, and he does this in other books as well. He takes a little jab at the concept of natural law because he says, you know, there's no perennial standard of what's right and wrong. How, you know, from, from what uh, deity do we derive morality when there's more than one deity and that sort of thing? So if you're a Judge Napolitanoite natural law person, you're going to understand better here, you know, his u- utilitarian perspective and worldview on economics. So you know, Peter, he he gets into then, uh, starts walking us through some of these chapters about wage and price controls and and other types of interventions in the market, and that's what this whole part is about. But I, I I'll say for myself anyway that the the next chapter, twenty eight, interference by taxation, I, I'm going to say maybe it was a little underwhelming, and maybe that's just because taxes weren't as much in the fore uh, in his mind in the 1940s. I'm I, you know, what do you think of this chapter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's, it's. Um, I think it's insightful, but it's not particularly uh, detailed. If you look, for example, uh, by comparison at Rothbard's treatment in Power and Market, where he offers Rothbard offers this kind of very original uh, taxonomy, no pun intended, for classifying different kinds of tax systems, and Mises doesn't go into that that level of detail. I think you're right. Um, in fact, you. You might argue that Mises' analysis of taxation in in uh, th- this chapter is, I mean, it's fairly conventional in the sense that it doesn't, uh, it, you know, it squares with what I think many economists. Uh, uh, it's the same kind of treatment that many economists uh, would have would have given. In in contrast to you know Mises' overall approach to interventionism, which I think is a little bit more unique, right? This idea hinted to in the previous chapter, hinted at in the previous chapter, that, um, you know, interventionism is kind of a distinct economic system. It's not just like a version of, of capitalism or, or quasi-socialism. You know, it's, it, it, it is in its, it, itself a kind of, uh, uh, as I say, a distinct economic system, but one that has a lot of internal contradictions. And Mises is famous for this idea that was expressed in the title of one of his shorter essays, Middle of the road policy leads to socialism. Those Mises didn't think that the interventionist economy was stable; that there would be these inevitable pressures for it to move in one direction or the other, and typically in the direction of more and more uh, government control, where you would sort of move away from 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 the middle ground. So, I think Mises does have an innovative approach to thinking about interventionism per se, but. Um, you know, in terms of taxes, his point about the impossibility of uh, taxes being neutral, right? So a lot of mainstream economists say, well, the ideal tax is one that raises a lot of revenue for the government, but doesn't really change how people act, doesn't change what entrepreneurs do, doesn't really distort the economy. And Mises points out quite rightly that there really is no such thing as a neutral tax any any means by the government to raise revenue through, through taxation is going to have some impact on production, on the allocation of resources, on the capital structure, on consumption patterns, and so forth. Uh, I'd have to go back and look 
I don't remember kind of what the mainstream thinking on the neutral tax was at that time. Rothbard in Man, Economy, and State talks a lot about this as well. And by the 1960s, 50s and 60s, when Rothbard was working on uh, uh, his treatise, it seems like a lot more uh, mainstream economists did believe that a neutral tax uh, was possible. Yeah, and it's interesting on uh, page 731, he brings up the ability to pay principle, and he talks about the, the it, as a postulate of social justice, so a term that we're still struggling with today. And I was thinking about how interesting that is. Obviously, that is the thinking behind a progressive tax system with gradually higher rates as your income goes up. But also, Peter, there are examples now in, in some European jurisdictions, for example, where even something like a speeding ticket uh, the the cost of that ticket can be based on your income or your ability to pay. So that sounds crazy to us when we think you know, Lady Liberty wears a blindfold. She's supposed right. to. She's supposed to. You know, justice is supposed to be blind. But I don't think a lot of folks on the left agree with that with respect to taxation. Yeah, I remember reading about some billionaire tech entrepreneur in Norway or Sweden, or maybe it was Denmark, I've forgotten now, who got arrested for speeding, you know, in his in his Tesla Model S and ended up having, you know, a million dollar speeding ticket uh, because it was a proportion of, of his income. Yeah, you're right, Jeff. And, uh, you know, on the, the point you made a few moments ago about natural law versus utilitarianism, it is super interesting that Mises does you know, approach things from a different perspective than than Judge Knapp or even than Murray Rothbard, who was more in the natural law uh, tradition. I mean, Ayn Rand it was would I guess would be classified as a kind of natural law or at least Aristotelian person if we had to to, to put her thinking on on you know onto this map. But a couple of points on that. I mean, in my mind, the fact that despite these differences in, in philosophical origin, thinkers like Mises and Rothbard come to largely the same conclusions in their positive analysis of how an economy works, is, is that's a point in favor of the Austrian tradition and the Austrian system, right? It's the, the kinds of analyses that we do and the conclusions that we reach are really robust to the choice of philosophical foundation. Uh, and the other uh, point worth noting is, you know, utilitarianism, for good reason, has kind of a bad it has a lot of negative connotations for those of us who think about, you know, sort of naive Benthamite utilitarianism, where we're just sort of adding up people's utilities and coming, uh, uh, choosing policies to give the greatest value to the greatest number of people and so forth. You know, Mises, as David Gordon points out, was a much more sophisticated utilitarian than uh, the utilitarianism that you read about in elementary uh, uh, philosophy book. Some people have used the have made a distinction between what they call act utilitarianism and rule utilitarianism, right? The former being the view that every single act that a person takes or uh, that a, every single decision made in a society should be evaluated on a case-by-case basis as to whether it promotes you know, the greatest good for the greatest number. Whereas Mises' sort of rule utilitarianism says, no, we want to look at a system of policies, procedures, institutions, kind of a system. And we want to ask, does this system produce a greater amount of social benefit than some other system? And of course, Mises thought that a capitalist system with laissez-faire, in the sense that we described it a few minutes ago, was the system that did produce the greatest amount of benefit you know, for society at large. So Mises was that kind of a utilitarian, but he wasn't this kind of crass Oh, I need to evaluate, you know, each action moment by moment to make sure it conforms to some utilitarian goal. He wasn't that kind of a thinker. Right. And listeners to the podcast might remember when we went through the ultimate foundations of economic science, we had a discussion on this as well. And and Henry Hazlitt actually helped shape Mises' thinking in this regard, and probably vice versa. Uh, but as you know, to wrap up this section on taxes, I mean, the the key point here, I think. In, in our day is what's the point of taxes? And this is really now important since the government and the Fed seem to just be creating money and credit willy-nilly. What's the point of taxes? Is the point of taxes to raise revenue or is it to reward and punish behavior? Yeah, I, it's a great point. And I think in, in today's environment, it's much more the latter, right? Because people believe that we can use monetary policy to achieve you know macroeconomic objectives that tax, the tax code should re- really be written 
you know, to, to accomplish these paternalistic nudges where we penalize behavior that we dislike and we incentivize behavior uh, that we like. So it's, the tax code has really become more a mechanism for social engineering than, than a mechanism for raising revenue you know, for so-called necessary state functions, since we live in a world where you know, we basically just print, uh, metaphorically print the money that we need, and uh, the, you know, tax receipts are not any kind of a constraint on government spending. And for people who aren't as engaged with the tax world as I used to be, I mean, these small changes in the 2018 tax bill affected how you could use old operating losses in a corporate setting when you purchased a company. And now this CARES Act that just passed a couple of weeks ago, the new uh, stimulus bill, actually changed the rule on that to once again allow some of those losses to be carried back five years. So what that is having the effect of doing is... Uh, having a bunch of people reopen merger and acquisitions deals and renegotiate the prices in some cases because they're they're getting a tax benefit that they uh, they hadn't bargained for at the time. So these you know these the, the idea that we have this uber complex tax code and that there's any coherence behind it or any direction or any theory or any goal is just absolute nonsense. It's an arbitrary ad hoc agglomeration of. Uh, little tidbits and special interests over the years. So it is an absolute mess and not getting better anytime soon, I fear. So that said, we get into chapter 29, restrictions on production. You know, this is pretty broad because he's he gets into not just tariffs and what we think of as, as or regulations or protectionism, but he gets into even labor legislation, the mobility of labor and capital. I mean, this is a pretty broad topic and he handles it here in a relatively few pages. Yeah, it really is. And I think it it reflects the emphasis within the Austrian understanding of markets and prices on production per se, right? Production is is not sort of automatic. It's not it, it's not simple. It involves this intricate lattice work of capital goods that have different places in, you know, what Austrians call the the time structure of production and uh, government interferences with how resources are allocated to produce final goods and services are a big deal. You can't, you know, surgically change this little part of the labor market or this little part of, you know, the import-export sector or, you know, use antitrust or so-called competition policy to change what firms can do and how firms can be organized and think, oh, yeah, I'm just going to I'm going to fix some little problem, a so-called market failure, as they would say. And that'll lead to these great sort of improvements. No, you, you, you just sort of mess up the whole interconnected system. Uh, you know, Jeff, I was thinking, like a lot of people, about uh, the toilet paper shortage. And uh, as, as regular visitors to Mises.org know, uh, from a number of articles, including uh, one by the smart Dr. Klein, which is my spouse, um, the price controls and anti-price gouging uh, laws and so forth have played a, a large role in explaining why store shelves are empty. But there's another part of the story, too, right, that, that you might wonder why you know, pe- people are at home more than they were before because of shelter-in-place requirements. And so the the demand for toilet paper to be consumed at home has gone up, even if there were no sort of, you know, hoarding, even if people weren't stocking up. They just need more toilet paper at the home because everybody is at home. Kids are at home and working. many of the working parents are at home too. But people have asked, well, why isn't – why isn't there a compensating decrease in use of toilet paper at schools and offices, right? Why don't we just take all the toilet paper that is designed for sort of institutional use and just put it in people's houses and, and solve the problem? And the answer is because there are two completely different supply chains that are involved in producing toilet paper for the home and toilet paper for the office. Uh, they're they're made from different kinds of pulp. They're made in different factories. They're packaged in different ways. They're distributed through different systems. And you can't just immediately flip a switch and you know just sort of move all of the production from office toilet paper to to home toilet paper. That's just one small illustration of how, in a complicated modern industrial advanced economy with this uh, uh, intricate structure of production. The government can't just go in and mandate some kind of changes 
in usage or production and have it, you know, sort of instantly work out without any kind of complications or, or, or side effects. So that's why restricting production, whether it's in the labor market or in the financial markets or in the market for industrial goods or whatever, can have huge impacts on the economy. So it's right that Mises, you know, gives a very general treatment of this problem in this short chapter. So his language, I think, is interesting. He uses the term the prize of restriction and restrictions as a privilege because I think sometimes we get so caught up in this idea of economic efficiency in the overall economy. And of course, that was Henry Hazlitt's great point is that we have to look at the effects of an economic policy on everyone in the long term. But as Mises points out here, there are winners. I mean, people do benefit from all kinds of regulations and tariffs and restrictions on the economy. They're, they're absolute political winners. Yeah, I love the term restriction in this sense, not only for the reason that you mentioned, but also because it reminds us that these edicts that come from the regulators, you know, they are restrictions in what people can do. They're outlawing certain kinds of choices that otherwise might be made on the market. You know, when politicians talk about the minimum wage law and how this is a great enabler of adding to people's wealth and helping people to get out of poverty and so forth. I think, no, the right way to think about the minimum wage law is it says that if a, a worker is willing and able to work for an employer, say a teenager or maybe an entry-level uh, worker without many marketable skills, who's willing to accept work at a wage below a price that the government has decreed, that transaction is illegal. It is forbidden. So minimum wage laws and other forms of price controls, wage controls, they restrict the market to uh, such that only certain kinds of voluntary transactions are, uh, are allowed, just as the, a tariff restricts imports of particular kinds of goods or services or some other intervention restricts what people are allowed to do on the market. The, the famous Harvard philosopher Robert Nozick, good friend of uh, David Gordon, had this cute remark in his uh, book Anarchy, State, and Utopia about the modern progressive or liberal, I guess he said, writing in the 70s, is in favor of, uh, thinks that, that all kinds of uh, voluntary behavior should be allowed with the exception of capitalistic acts between consenting adults. In other words, to a left liberal, the government should stay out of the bedroom and should stay out of a woman's body and should allow you to, you know, take drugs or, or drink alcohol or whatever. But we should not allow consenting adults to engage in economic relationships without the government's approval. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating. What what I had not really remembered from this chapter is at the end, he talks about viewing restrictions. And again, that's a broad term here that can apply to regulations, to tariffs, to wage and price controls, just restrictions. That's the, so he's not using some of the lingo that we use today in that broader sense. But when we think of restrictions, we should be thinking of them as measures that belong in the sphere of consumption. And what he means is that we're, in effect, spending the increased amount of value or efficiency we would wrest from the economy if uh, – if whatever good or service was provided unhampered. And he he says, you know, think of a national park. If we if the federal government cordons that off and uses that only for tourism so that people can go see Mother Nature, we've in effect spent the money of all the perhaps economically better and higher uses to which we could have put that national park. So yeah. am I getting that right? Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. No, I think you're right. And, and you know, who's who are the consumers of this new arrangement of factors and, and so forth, or rather whose preferences are satisfied by this new consumption pattern, well, it's the bureaucratic decision makers. It's the sort of state elites. I remember, Jeff, when I was a PhD student, I had a, a, a class in which the professor uh, gave the students an exercise to, to come up with some interesting data series and do some analysis of it. And I, I remember I used uh, the system, the, the revised system of uh, national and product accounts, these macroeconomic uh, data series that were suggested by Murray Rothbard, where he argued that uh, that, that so-called investment by government, you know, government spending, or rather government spending should be classified not as a not as a form of investment, you know, roads and bridges and infrastructure, but rather as a form of consumption on the part of government officials, right? That when when tax dollars are used to build a dam somewhere, 
where there otherwise wouldn't be a dam, where private investors would not have chosen to put a dam, rather than view that as adding to the economy's capital structure, we should view that as the, the government bureaucrats are satisfying their desire to have a dam. And so you get a different pattern of uh, consumption spending when you include these goods and services we get through government action as a kind of consumption rather than investment. As I recall, I did not get a very good grade uh, on that assignment. But you're exactly right to point out, uh, uh, to, to remind us uh, that Mises points out that all of these interferences, right, they result in a different set of goods and services being produced than the ones that otherwise would have been produced. And that's satisfying the desires of government officials in their capacity as consumers. They get the stuff that they think is cool and that they want, you know, Barack Obama thought we ought to have more electric cars and fewer gasoline powered cars. Okay. And if he enacts policies to subsidize, uh, you know, electric batteries and electric car manufacturers, Elon Musk and so forth, well then Barack Obama and his pals get to consume what they want, a world with more electrics and fewer gas-powered cars. It's just not the consumption pattern that the market would have chosen. You know, folks, this is just one of those examples when Mises says we ought to think of restrictions not as a system of production, but rather as a system of quasi-consumption. It just You have to think about it a little bit. You might have to read it twice, and you just benefit. You know, For a lay reader like myself, uh, th this is nothing like an econ textbook. It's nothing like you remember from undergraduate. And that's why I enjoy. I mean, I consider it a privilege to have the time for my job to be able to work through this book and uh, bring it to you because you get to spend some time inside the mind of, of such a brilliant man. And, you know, one thing he gets at in this chapter, Peter, is that a lot of this restrictionism in whatever form is based on this absurd concern about balance of payments and trade deficits and all these fallacies involved, of which he disabuses us towards the end of the chapter by saying, look, all those dollars eventually have to come back into the United States economy unless those Japanese and German folks are just giving them away or burying them in the ground somewhere. So he does uh, give us a little treatment of the this this fallacy that is still so stubborn today, this balance of payment and trade deficits. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. And uh, uh, I think uh, partly through the, the, the influence of Mises and other writers in the Austrian tradition and other free market economists, I think there's a little bit more sensitivity on this point among professional economists, right? That, you know, you hear people say, well, I don't have a, my household doesn't have a, a, a you know, I have a trade deficit with Amazon and, and, and Walmart, and that seems perfectly reasonable. And I think people understand that, well, there's no reason for a city or a state or a nation to have sort of balanced trade uh, with another nation. But uh, politicians, uh, of course, don't don't see that see it that way, or rather, they're they're able to exploit uh, public confusion on this point, to you know when they want to protect domestic manufacturers and and, and restrict imports and so forth. Uh, but I also like the idea that that Mises expresses towards the end of the chapter two in this. Uh, I think it's the last section, section four, of uh, this chapter. That again, just as he describes interventionism as a kind of discrete system that's distinct from a pure laissez-faire system and a socialist system, you know, he has this idea that a world in which you have lots of these little piecemeal restrictions becomes a form of intervention in itself, interventionism in itself, that you can think of uh, restriction as an, as an economic system rather than looking at just, you know, one restriction uh, here or there, because you have these spillovers, right? A restriction in one area of the economy calls forth restrictions in other parts of the economy to compensate for what government officials or the public perceive as being harms from the initial restriction. Yeah, it, it, it never ends, does it? But it's certainly a mindset that restriction begets restriction because we have to plan one thing, the spillover effects, <laughs> you know, and I think we're going to see that with this COVID shutdown. I think we're going to see unintended consequences writ very, very, very large. So, Peter, in this final chapter of today's show, chapter 30, he titles it Interference with the Structure of Prices. So for our audience, why doesn't he just say interference with prices? There's a difference, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. Because, you know, this idea of a structure of prices, I think, relates to the Austrian notion of a structure of production, right? That prices are connected to each other, just as capital goods used in production are connected to each other. 
Also, Austrians, unlike their mainstream counterparts, are not interested so much in average prices, you know, the price level or, or the, the price of some representative market basket, right? But rather the, the detailed structure of actual prices themselves, right? So prices, prices is a plural noun. Right. What we're concerned about is government intervention that has an impact on a whole set of prices that otherwise would have obtained in the market. We're not just interested in average prices or something like the price level. Yeah. And he points out early on here that when we're talking about interference with prices, uh, we call that price fixing, whatever. He's talking about prices that we think of as consumer prices, wholesale prices, whatever but also wage rates and also interest rates. Yep. And of course, as Joe Salerno points out, in, and, and as Mises takes pains to explain, uh, we, you know, it's a little slippery to think of interest rates as prices. They are sort of ratios about you know, time preference and th- their signals. But nonetheless, he's, he does bring in interest rates here in, in the scope of what he's talking about in terms of interference. Yeah, I mean, look, at, at root, prices are ways of expressing exchange ratios, right? Prices reflect the terms of trade or the terms of exchange in a monetary economy rather than using a whole bunch of different ratios expressed in barter terms, right? We can we can express all of these exchange ratios in terms of one single commodity, the money commodity. But, but you're right. I mean, in a sense, uh, you can think of uh, interest rates – you know, the the interest rate is the price that I pay for exchanging some of my future consumption for some present consumption, right? I don't have a dollar today, but I want it. So you and I work at a deal. You give me a dollar that I can spend today, and I agree to give you a dollar and 10 cents next year. Or I guess under the current regime, it would be what a dollar and, you know, one hundredth of a cent mm. uh, a year from now. That interest payment, right? In a sense, that's the price that I pay for being able to shift my consumption through time, right? By, by you know, consuming now uh, out of income that I expect to earn in the future. So, I mean, you're right, an interest rate, it's not exactly a price in the same way that uh, the price of a tomato is 50 cents, but it is a price in that it reflects the rate at which people are willing to exchange particular goods and services. And so, you know, this is why Mises is, you know, transitioning in, in the next few chapters here to talk about monetary policy, uh, because monetary policy affects the price structure, not just the prices of goods and services exchanged for money, but also, of course, the whole structure of interest rates, which has a huge set of consequences for, um, for the economy. Well, and as he points out, that when you set prices, you tend to shift production activities away from the the goods that are being, especially when there's a, a price ceiling put on something. Uh, you know, just briefly talk about what I hope is not coming to America, which is shortages during this COVID crisis, and what pr- price floors and price ceilings might mean for us. I mean, we I, I hate to think about it, but we might face a situation in, in the coming months where uh, certain agricultural products are at a premium and, uh, you know, all the things we like to get at Target or CVS are just not so readily available. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I mean, I hope we don't see that as well, but it is possible uh, because, you know, there, there's still a, a basic misunderstanding, I think, uh, among parts of the public, which, of course, is encouraged by politicians and intellectuals and so forth, to think of prices, you know, not as the, the result of voluntary interactions and bargaining among different participants in the market, but rather prices as sort of being unilaterally set by people with power, with economic power. You know, Sam Walton or, uh, uh, you know, Martin Zuckerberg or uh, Jeff Bezos simply decides how much I'm going to have to give up to be able to consume the good or service that they provide, right? Big companies, landlords, uh, uh, employers who pay wages, they just unilaterally decide on consumer prices and wages and rents and so forth, and they impose their will on the rest of us. We poor, hapless workers, consumers, borrowers, renters, and so forth. And we have no choice but you know, to suck it up and pay the prices that they demand. I mean, if you believe in a world like that, if you believe that prices really just reflect the arbitrary will of the price setter, and you think the price setter is a bad guy or bad gal or whatever, yeah, sure, why not? Why not use the democratic process? Why not allow government officials and bureaucrats and so forth 
to pick prices that are better, that are more reasonable, that are more fair. But of course, if you understand that prices, especially for Amazon and Walmart and firms like that, are not set by the arbitrary will of one participant on one side of the market, but rather reflect the complex interactions and voluntary decisions of buyers and sellers, you know, workers and employers and so forth, right? then you realize you know, arbitrarily decreeing, using government decree to force the price to be higher or lower than the price that would have obtained in a free market system causes all kinds of problems, distortions, misallocation of resources. We talked about toilet paper earlier, right? I mean, because we do have a toilet paper shortage on the supply side relative to the amount that people now want to, to get for toilet paper to be used in the home for reasons that we talked about before, you would expect the market price of toilet paper to rise, not to a million dollars a roll, right? But to something more than the price that would obtain in the absence of stay-at-home orders and lockdowns. And if the government passes a law that says you may not raise the price of toilet paper more than 5% or 10%, or maybe you're not allowed to raise it to, to increase that price at all, well, then you're going to see empty shelves, right? Because at that low price, uh, people will just assume, you know, fill up their basements uh, with toilet paper. That's why you now see uh, attempts to restrict consumption where, where prices can't rise, but demands are increased. Uh, sellers are uh, required sometimes by law and sometimes by uh, uh, they simply choose to try to restrict consumption using some kind of rationing. No more than you know six rolls per customer, right? If we allowed prices to rise and fall, it wouldn't be necessary for stores to impose those kind of consumption restrictions. You could allow people to choose how much they want to hold, how much they want to add to their inventory, how much they want to consume, you know, based on uh, based on market forces, based on based on supply and demand. So if we, you know, if things continue to get wonky you know, on the production side and most municipalities and states, as they do now, continue to have some limits on how much prices can change. Yeah, we could see really bad distortions. We could see really big shortages and really big surpluses. Nobody wants that. Well, let's take a little bit more concrete example. So let's say as a result of Smithfield Farms shutting down some plants, let's say some other meat producers go offline and meat prices spike. What frightens me, I guess, is not just the notion that obviously producers respond to incentives, but also that there is a lot of uncertainty about about the arbitrariness of government action in the future. And, and I think that uncertainty alone, apart from incentives, is a deterrent on production. Yeah, this is a point that has famously been made by uh, our friend Robert Higgs with what he calls regime uncertainty. That's a concept that he developed originally to explain why uh, the Great Depression lasted as long as it did, that all of these efforts by uh, FDR and his alphabet agencies, you know, to experiment with different forms of government intervention left entrepreneurs and investors in a position where they were not able to do any long-term planning because the rules of the game were continually changing. Um, likewise, under the current environment, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, we're, we're, we would expect a reduction in investment for uh, lo longer-term benefit, partly because of you know, the collapse of different uh, the supply side of the economy, but also because nobody knows what uh, what their laws are going to be. Nobody knows what the rules about, uh, 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 you know, dealing with, uh, you know, restrictions on movement and, and business closures and other sort of pandemic related policies. Nobody knows what these are and how long they're going to last. So it makes people very reluctant to go back to business as usual. But you know what people on the left would say? They'd say, well, some goods and services are essential to people's well-being and, and they need them, food, shelter, et cetera. So if you take an S-class Mercedes, nobody ever worries about a shortage of S-class Mercedes. The things are cost $120,000 or whatever they cost. And nonetheless, if they were very cheap, I, there's, there's lots of people in America who would love to have a big fancy S-class Mercedes. So it's not a problem of demand. It's not yeah. a problem, but there's no shortages, to my knowledge, of S-class Mercedes out there, right? Because <laughs> right. there's supply and demand find their way. And if you've got 120 grand and a hankering for one, you can go buy one. But when it comes to toilet paper, people would say, well, this is, this is different. That's what they would say, Peter. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's a reasonable point that, you know, we, 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 we sort of, 
we recoil at the idea that people of limited means might be required to spend more of their income on certain kinds of necessities, right? But I think there are two problems with that reasonable intuition, right? One is that, look, of course, there are other means for assisting people of, uh, of limited income in their ability to get goods and services uh, that are needed in the market. That's, you know, we have the, the philanthropic sector and mutual aid and so forth uh, to help people who are short of income that they could spend on, on whatever it might be. But the second point is that there's, there's a surprising amount of substitution on the margin, even among those of us who are not in the market for an S-Class Mercedes, right? I mean, there are lots of different kinds of toilet paper. There are other kinds of materials that perform a similar function as toilet paper. Some people, you know, like to keep a lot of toilet paper on hand. Other people don't. There are many ways that we can adjust our consumption in response to price shocks without lowering our overall standard of living as much as we would think. I mean, right, look at, look at as you say, with the meat packing, if, if we have to close down a bunch of meat packing plants and we get shortages of beef and chicken on the shelves, I mean, that's terrible. I like beef and chicken, right? But I recognize that there are other forms of protein that I can substitute on the margin right? If the prices of those things go up, there are other goods and services that I am currently consuming that are not totally essential, which I could, you know, I, I could, I could cut my Netflix subscription, I could stop spending money on some other things if I really had to, to be able to afford a certain amount of protein or to avoid to, uh, uh, to afford toilet paper or whatever. There, there's another point as well, that we have to keep in mind that the supplies of these things are not static either, they're not fixed. They depend on the incentives that entrepreneurs face in bringing more product to market. So one of the problems in placing price controls on meat or price controls on toilet paper is that that weakens the incentives of uh, entrepreneurs to, to bring more toilet paper and more meat to market or to invest in other kinds of products that could be substitutes for toilet paper and meat. So price controls have a lot of negative effects both on the demand side and on the supply side. Yeah. And imagine you're a toilet paper producer and all of a sudden there's this huge new demand and there's even some shortages reported. I mean, think about it. It's, it's not just so easy in today's world to go out and hire a few hundred new people to run shifts 24 hours a day, let's say, at your facility. Yeah. I mean, not only do you have the regulatory framework around hiring, you have to find those people. They have to exist. Uh, they have to physically be near enough to arrive at your facility. Uh, you have to have the machinery work 24 hours a day. The machinery might wear out faster. You might have more maintenance on that machinery. Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes we're expecting utopian answers from the market. Yeah, that's and that's right. not how the world works. That's right. Or we we depend on you know sort of charity and goodwill to get resources to the places where we think they're most urgently needed. Now, I'm all in favor of charity and goodwill. And we hear stories about you know, textile manufacturers who are shifting their production to, to producing masks or industrial companies that are trying to start uh, producing ventilators and so forth. That's fine. But wouldn't it be even better if we did not have to rely on entirely on the goodwill of factory owners, entrepreneurs, managers, and so forth, but we could also rely on the profit motive, right? Even the nasty, greedy textile manufacturer who really has no desire to produce masks because it's the right thing to do will be motivated to produce more masks if they, you know, if there's money to be made in doing so, and you know artificially holding the prices of these kinds of goods and services below their market level, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't give that incentive. So yeah, it sounds nasty to think, oh well, I can't imagine you know, this guy's gonna get rich benefiting from a pandemic. That sounds that sounds horrible. That offends our moral uh, sensibilities, which is perfectly true. But if our goal is to get more masks and more ventilators or whatever it might be to get people's new increase the uh, people's nutrition, uh, you know, to get more important household products on in people's pantries, then we need to allow for a certain amount of greediness that, uh, that you know, that gives us more of those things. We're, we're, we're better off in society allowing people to profit from a natural disaster than forbidding any sort of profiting under those conditions. Yes. And of course, it's not just 
price controls. Uh, there's also wage rates. Wages are controlled. Wages are a price of source. He has a pretty robust section, Peter, towards the end of this chapter on wages. I just want to bring up a couple of points and get your takes on both of them. First, I think that people, our friends on the left, and even a lot of probably market or people on the right, market economists or people on the right, would I think would howl at his assertion that basically if you get government out of the equation and get unions out of the equation, the only real unemployment you'll be left with is basically voluntary or catalactic. Yep. So I think a lot of people would object to that statement. And I also think you know, a lot of people still don't get his point that what really causes higher wages over time is technological improvements and capital accumulation. It's not legislation or fiat. So, you know, give me your thoughts on his treatment of minimum wage laws. Yeah. Yeah, I think your summary is very good. I mean, Mises would not be opposed to, you know, from, from a sort of philosophical point of view, is not opposed to workers voluntarily you know, taking a hard hard line and negotiating or bargaining uh, with with employers for higher wages, but Mises doesn't think that is a useful strategy. Again, from his utilitarian point of view, if the workers and advocates for the so-called working classes, if the goal is to improve real wages, then Mises thinks that bargaining for higher wages through uh, unions and certainly pro-union legislation is just not going to be effective at achieving that goal because in the long run, what determines wages. And Mises' understanding is the marginal productivity of labor, which is determined primarily by the amount of capital invested per worker. So, I mean, to put it crudely, um, you know, labor unions and, and wage bargaining is about, you know, dividing up the pie. And this idea that, well, the, the owners and the managers are getting this big piece of the pie, and that's not fair, and the workers need to get a bigger piece of that pie. You know, Mises would say, yeah, but over time, what we really care about is making the pie bigger, right? The workers, even if the workers get a small percentage of, you know, the value that's created on a given day, what's in the workers' best interest is to is to increase productivity, so that there's more, there's a bigger pie for you know to, to bargain over uh, over time. And if union activity reduces productivity, right? If it means there's less 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 profit available for uh, entrepreneurs to invest in developing new methods of production, to come up with technological improvements and so forth, if it reduces the capital structure and the value of the capital structure, then the workers are kind of shooting themselves in the foot. I mean, they're getting a little bit of a higher wage now, but it means that their wages won't rise in the future compared to how much their wages would rise if they would allow the market to work. By the way, this thing about voluntary unemployment, yeah, it is it does sound funny to modern ears, but remember, you know, Mises has a different kind of a system, different way of thinking about the economy than the way most kind of modern mainstream economists do. Mises is not an equilibrium theorist. When you hear this stuff about uh, uh, all unemployment being voluntary on the free market, a lot of modern economists think, oh, well, Mises must have thought that the economy was in perfect equilibrium and Mises didn't recognize that sometimes people just make a mistake and they're trying to find a job and they, and they can't find one, but they would like to be employed. Well, that's not what Mises, when Mises speaks of voluntary unemployment, he doesn't mean people who are sitting at home saying, yay, I'm so glad I'm unemployed, right? What Mises means is on the unhampered market economy, Right. There are always bargains that can be struck between workers and those who would wish to hire labor. Right. Depending on the skills and interests and so forth of those workers and overall market conditions and so forth. So Mises thinks that you know systematic unemployment is always the result of some government interference or restriction, to use Mises term, on the labor market, that it's not the natural outgrowth of a, a, of a capitalist labor system. And he always gives us history. He makes some interesting remarks at page 765 about Marx. He says, look, Marx might have viewed strikes and union measures as on an ad hoc basis worthy, but really Marx's ultimate goal was the abolition 
of the wage system, not higher wages. And he even says, you know, consistent Marxians, I'm quoting him, consistent Marxians always opposed attempts to impose minimum wage rates as detrimental to the interests of the whole labor class. So in his telling, even Marxians would recognize that while certain protected groups might benefit, let's say uh, steel workers in, in a collective bargaining agreement might benefit, th- those people in the town who might want to work at the steel plant and weren't part of the union, uh, they're, you know, Marxians are supposed to care about them too, and they're on the outside looking in. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this touches on a point that we discussed earlier about kind of winners and losers or insiders and outsiders, uh, winners and losers from government policy, completely true. Uh, in terms of uh, wage bargaining. And I think there's uh, this extremely clear illustration. Uh, obviously, those who are in on the bargain, who are in, in the union and who are able to maintain uh, their employment status at these higher wages are beneficiaries of the minimum wage policy. But you know what we don't, the, the losers are largely you know, what Hazlitt called the unseen, right? Those who would have been willing to work at a lower wage, but are not able to because that lower wage has been outlawed. Because it's easy to see with like a steel tariff, domestic steel producers benefit and, uh, uh, you know, consumers of products with steel, they're harmed because they pay higher prices and so forth. But uh, people don't always see it in terms of the labor market. There's a famous example of this in the context of, you know, uh, apartheid South Africa, right, that the, 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 the the, the most important political proponents of the apartheid system were the white labor unions, right, who didn't want to compete against low-wage black labor. So it wasn't somehow that these unions were representing the interests of the working classes, quote-unquote. They were representing the special interest of some particular group of, of workers. So, Peter, in your thinking, do we use Marxist to refer to people who advocate Marx's broader, let's say, political program, and we use Marxian to refer to people who uh, promote, let's say, his more economic program. Is that the distinction between Marxist and Marxian? Yeah, I think that's probably right. And that's what people sometimes mean when they say, well, Marx was no Marxist, mm. meaning that Marx, the theoretician, was not an explicit opponent, uh, proponent of everything that we call sort of Marxist policy. I like to use the term Marxist for both just to kind of needle people who believe that there's some sort of scientific Marxianism, mm-hmm. okay. Marxian doctrine. I don't don't have a don't hold Marxian doctrine in very high regard. So I think it's fine to call those people Marxists just because it gets under their skin. Well I want to wrap up this conversation with one last question for you. You know, in Man Economy and State, in the power and market section of that book, which was written at the same time, but was sort of published separately uh, because of publisher concerns at the time. Rothbard brings up this rubric of autistic and binary and triangular interventions. So he sets up a, a little bit different nomenclature. Do you think our, you know, do you think that uh, Mises would have benefited from that? Do you think Mises is uh, that that Rothbard elaborated successfully on this part of Mises's book? I mean, give us your thoughts about these sort of two versions. Yeah, that's a good question. And I alluded to this a little bit earlier with this notion of a taxonomy. I do think Rothbard's taxonomy is useful. I do th- I do think it's consistent with Mises' understanding. I mean, w- you know, would Mises have uh, embraced that exact terminology or, or that, that specific classification system? I'm not sure. But I think it is useful to talk separately about uh, you know, policies that restrict just me you know, as an individual and in actions that I want to take. To, to treat that separately from uh, interventions or restrictions that limit what you and I can do in our exchanges or uh, restrictions that I impose that restrict what you can do in your interactions, you know, with a third party. I mean, obviously, there, there are similarities, right? There's some common effects across these different kinds of intervention or different kinds of restrictions. But yeah, I think Rothbard's taxonomy is extremely useful. It's very simple and clear, like like all of Rothbard's writing. And again, as we mentioned at the beginning of the of the podcast, um, you know, Mises, uh, his treatment is very, is very thorough, but um, he doesn't go into all of these issues in a great amount of depth. And I think uh, Rothbard's treatment in Power and Market elaborates on and extends upon many of these Misesian insights, you know, with Rothbard's characteristically uh, uh, clear exposition and, you know, sparkling prose 
So I would certainly recommend anybody who is a fan or wants to, 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 to learn more about the issues treated in this section of human action to spend some time in those chapters in Power and Market. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to delve forward into for the rest of part six of this great book next week. Uh, again, we encourage you, if you've thought about reading this book, if you want a copy of it, you know, we have a free HTML version at Mises.org. Simply type human action in the search bar and you'll come up with a beautiful uh, HTML version clickable by section so you can find wherever we are in the book at absolutely zero cost to you. We also have a beautiful hardcover version called the Scholar's Edition of this book at our, at our store, uh, which is only, I think, $20. If you use the code HAPOD for Human Action Podcast, you get a discount on that. We have a, a great little $5 paperback if you've got good young eyes and you can read tiny, tiny print. You can read Human Action, I think, for $5 in paperback. And it's one of those books, as I've stated before, I really encourage you to wrestle with, to take a, at least an attempt at uh, because you're going to benefit. It's like a workout at the gym. You're going to feel better afterwards. And really, there's a lot of pleasurable writing and language in here where you'll just absolutely be blown away by Mises, again, writing in a second language, not his original German. And it's a book that's going to stick with you. And, and frankly, from my perspective, a book you want to own physically, you want to have it on your bookshelf and not just in Kindle or whatever version. But if you are if you want to get uh, you know join the podcast and be reading along with us, again, we have the HTML version available. So all that said, Dr. Peter Klein, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Oh yeah, Jeff. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.